Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you here this morning. Glad you're here with us. That song speaks a lot of truth, doesn't it? That we have such uh, great hope, that we have such great life, such great, a great future ahead of us, that there is a glorious day for us to look forward to. Amen? Amen. And sometimes, you know, I, I find that it's, it's hard to put all of that into words, into a way that those who maybe don't believe can, can hear and can understand just what we mean when we say that God holds our future. So today's lesson is entitled, How to Speak Gooder About God. <clears throat> I've worked in ministry with several different churches uh, since the time I was 19 years old. So for 25 years, when people have asked me what my job is or what I do, I tell them that I work for a church. And I have gotten a lot of different reactions to that little nugget. Um, I remember uh, one of the first times I was ever asked, what do you do, in a setting that was completely removed from the church scene. I had just moved to Arlington, Virginia, and I was working as a youth minister there, as you guys know, and uh, I didn't know really anyone there. And there weren't, uh, I, I knew some, some college students who were there during the summer, but then once they left, I had no friends. I know, it's true. And you're asking yourself, Bryce, how can a guy so likable as you not have friends? <laughs> I know, it's hard to believe, but just squint a little bit, you can see it. Uh, so I didn't have any friends, so what I would do, and this is truly pathetic, but you know, it is what it is, I would go to the mall. And I would walk around the mall. There was this really big mall in Crystal City, like multiple levels and all this stuff. So I'd, I would walk around the mall. And apparently, I walked around the mall enough that a store offered me a job. <laughs> so I took a part-time job uh, at a clothing store there, and I worked with a bunch of college students. So it was great, right? Because I'm going to get to meet all these people. They're all roughly my age. I'd graduated from college, and they're in college. But it was just going to get me around some people um, but then they would ask me the question, what do you do? And I would say, oh, I'm a, I'm a youth pastor at this church. And all of a sudden, they would have something to do on the other side of the store. <laughs> I know. Uh, I don't know what they were afraid of. Perhaps uh, they thought that if they stayed next to me, I would start to talk to them about coming to church, or maybe they felt uncomfortable uh, talking about, uh, you know, their weekend or whatever, because maybe I was going to judge them. But it was kind of an eye-opening experience for me that are people afraid of me because, because I'm a pastor? And, and, and let's be honest, I mean, even if you just, you know, Janice is a nurse and and Don sits around and tells people what to do all day, whatever. <laughs> you know, like, you, when you're asked what you do, you can say, this is, this is what I do. And, and maybe you have even had the response of you telling someone that you're a Christian and they kind of react perhaps adversely. Well, when you tell them that, that you work for a church, it just magnifies it, right? As I've gotten older, I've been really blessed to make friends with people who respect what it is that I do, even if they don't agree with me or really even understand what it is that I do. Um, 
So we've made friends with some parents from the boys' school, and when they find out that I'm a pastor, their first response is usually, really? Uh, because I don't look like what they, their experiences had dictated a pastor looks like. And, and then we've invited them over to our house for dinner, and um, we find out later, because we've become good friends with these people, how nervous they were to come to our house and, and what were we going to be like? And should we bring a bottle of wine? I don't know. Like, what if, you know, I told them you shouldn't worry about it. We'll just turn water to wine. It's fine. It's fine. Um, and once they got to know me, we would have really good conversations about faith and life, even if they hadn't come to church. But every, every now and then, uh, when, if you introduce yourself or you introduce your faith or you say what it is that is important to you, you know, I'm going to church this weekend or I'm singing at church this weekend or, you know, whatever it is, you meet people who think that they know better than you. So there are some people you meet when they hear about what you believe or what you think, they're just kind of afraid of you. And then they have other people that are like, oh, right? Uh, I found myself at a dinner at a friend's house with a lot of people from their group of friends that I didn't really know. And at one point in the night, I was in the kitchen and um, listening into a conversation between three other people and just sort of interjecting a word here and there. And I, and I knew two of the people and I didn't know the third one. And the third one was this guy who was talking the loudest and knew the most about everything. And he started talking about the church and religion and everything that's wrong with it. And he didn't know that I'm a pastor, right? So every now and then you do have a fun time as a pastor where you can like, pastor bomb. Oh, really, you hate church and Christians. Well, let me pray for you. You know, like you can do some of these things. But I found myself, I, I, I found myself wondering what, what should I say into this space? And, and this guy keeps talking, and my buddy just kind of keeps looking at me like, <laughs> like, do I tell him? No. But I should. No. Maybe we should. No. It, we just let him go on and on. But, but I found myself in this genuinely conflicted place. And you, I know, have experienced this before. Okay, so let me just break it down for you a little bit. How do you approach someone who is intelligent, has done some amount of research on something that pertains to religion or church or Christianity or Jesus or faith and has very negative views that don't align with what you know to be true. And how, how do you speak into that space? I'm not talking about someone who got burnt by church when they were, you know, a young person or, or any of those things. I'm talking about, you know, the kind of person who has made it their intellectual pursuit to understand why religion or Christianity or faith is wrong. How do you talk about God with people who don't want to talk about God because they think they already know everything about God? How do you talk about God with people who don't want to have a spiritual discussion? And furthermore, how do you talk to people about God who believe that you are stupid for thinking what you do? Should you? Should you try? Do you wade into those waters? 
Do you avoid them altogether? And it's a tough question that I want us to chew on for a little bit. Now, we're getting close to the end of the book of Acts. This is our 17th lesson from the book of Acts. And so we are skipping over some things here uh, at the end. We're going to have two more lessons after this where we talk about Paul being in Jerusalem and then Paul going on to Rome. Uh, But Paul, at this point in our story, is heading out on his next uh, missionary journey. And he's taking the gospel to places that you know, places like Corinth. And uh, places that you have read the letters that Paul has written to these churches and you understand some things about them. So in Acts chapter 17, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. Paul goes to this little city that you've probably heard of called Athens. So let's pick it up here in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Okay, so the first thing that we want to notice about this encounter is that Paul, this is a, this is a very different encounter than what we have seen Paul have before. And so the entire premise is important for us to understand because up to this point in the story, most of the time the story has focused on Paul's uh, dealings with the Jewish people within each town, and, and then kind of goes on to how, you know, he, st- he starts in the synagogue, and then he goes to these other places, and you hear about Gentiles that are converted, but most of the conversation is with Jews. And so when he comes in and he talks to Jews, he talks about uh, the Old Testament, he brings in Scripture, he brings in the prophets, he brings in all these things. Well, he's in Athens now, baby. So there is a lot more going on than in some of these places, although there is a synagogue. Now, in Paul's day, Athens was a shadow of its former glory uh, in its golden age in the 4th and 5th centuries B.C. At this time, Corinth was actually the leading city of Greece commercially and politically. And even Athens' native population had dwindled, estimated to be somewhere around 5,000 citizens at this time. So Paul rolls into Athens, and... um, he first notices just how many idols there are. Uh, Athens was known the world over for its art and architecture, still is. Most of the art uh, portrayed the various exploits of the different uh, gods and goddesses that were part of the Greek pantheon. And most of the most impressive buildings in town were temples. 
to one of these gods. And the NIV tells us that Paul was greatly distressed by the fact that there are all these idols everywhere he looks. Now, that translation that he was greatly distressed is actually kind of an understatement for what he was actually feeling. The Greek word that Luke used is a much stronger word. Uh, we get our word paroxysm from it, which I know you all use paroxysm all the time. But let me just define it for those of you who may not know what it is. Uh, the word paroxysm means a sudden attack or violent expression of a particular emotion or activity. So perhaps you could liken it to something like your teenage daughter hearing that she has to do something she doesn't want to do. Ugh. Paul was infuriated at this sight that there were all of these idols. I mean, not just one or two, but idols everywhere. Um, ancient descriptions testify that the marketplace was virtually lined with them, particularly what they called the Herms, the monuments to Hermes with the head of the god on top. So he goes to speak to the Jews on the Sabbath, and during the week, what he would do is he would go out into the Gora, which was the marketplace, to testify and to talk about Jesus and the resurrection to people who we find throughout this conversation have no idea what he's talking about. None. And it was there that he began to have conversations with people whose job it was to sit around and think and talk about ideas. This is what they liked to do. And there are two groups that were mentioned, not three, two groups <laughs> that were mentioned uh, that he has conversations with. The first is the Epicureans, who were materialists, believing that everything came from atoms or particles of matter. They believed that there was no life beyond life in this stage, and that all, human, uh, all humans return to matter at death. They did not deny the existence of gods. They saw them, though, as being completely indifferent to humanity. They didn't care at all. And they didn't believe that gods were involved in the world in any way or form. And if one truly learned from the gods, that person would try to live the same sort of detached and tranquil life as the gods do, as free from pain and passion and superstitious fears as they. So this is their, this is their ground rule, okay? This is life. This is all there is. That's it. Now, the Stoics had a different view of the gods than the Epicureans, and they did believe that the gods were present and that they acted in the world around them. Uh, they were pantheists, though, they, so they believed that the ultimate divine principle was to be found in all of nature, including human beings, and that this spark of divinity, which they referred to, ironically enough, as the Logos, um, that they referred to as a logos was the cohesive principle that bound the entire cosmic world together. Humans thus realized their full potential when they lived by reason. By reason, or what they would sometimes call the divine principle, within them, link them with the gods and with nature, and they could discover ultimate truth for themselves. They had a pretty high ethic and put great stock in being self-sufficient, uh, since they viewed all humans as being bound together by common possession of the divine spark, and they also had a strong sense of universal brotherhood. 
So imagine this, if you would, that these two groups of people, one group that believes there is a divine spark in God in the world, and they sit around and they talk about these ideas and how it's present all day, and then you have these other guys over here that are like, nope, this is all there is, and, and they're just in this marketplace of ideas, and into the middle of this marketplace of ideas strolls Paul. Now, we know that Paul is a couple of things, right? We know that he uh, is a pretty smart guy, pretty intelligent. But we also know, more importantly, that he gets his words from whom? From the Holy Spirit. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit to give the messages that he gives. And we also know that Paul likes to talk about ideas. (laughs) So this is like the perfect storm for Paul, the, the, the perfect place for him to be. And these philosophers, they hear him talking, and they give him a not-so-flattering nickname of babbler. Um, it's this word that they use uh, means seed speaker, which evoked images of a bird pecking indiscriminately at seeds in a barnyard. As if he was talking about things and picking up pieces here and there, but he really didn't understand what it was that he was trying to explain to him. It's, it's another way to say, like, he's nuts. Thank you, John. They could not understand, in particular, this idea of the resurrection. Um that, you know, God would come to the world and sacrifice himself and raise again this whole thing. I mean, the Epicureans didn't believe in any existence after death, and Stoics believed that only the soul survived death, and so this whole idea of some sort of eternity with God and resurrection was something that they just couldn't wrap their minds around. And so they go to the babbler and they say, why don't you come with us to this meeting at the Aeropagus, which was both a court where they talked about ideas and a hill that the court met on. So it's not really clear exactly what he's being drawn into, other than that he comes to this official place. He's not on trial, that's clear, but he comes to this official place to sort of communicate in front of everybody, once and for all, his ideas, so that they can pick them apart. Let's, not, let's be clear about that. So that they can pick them apart. So Paul goes, let's pick it up in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Aeropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and that is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. 
For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Okay, now there is a lot that can be said about this speech. And if you are ever interested in studying a passage uh, from the book of Acts or the New Testament, there is a lot written about this speech. But I want us to just make some simple observations about not only what he said, but how he said it and what he decided to do. First thing he does, which we can't overlook, is that he complimented the Athenians. So he didn't walk into their court and said, listen, knuckleheads, I'm about to lay some truth on you. You might want to sit down for this one. He doesn't do that. Instead, and, and be clear, Paul does not agree with what they believe in. He thinks they're wrong. They think he's stupid. He thinks they're wrong. He knows that they are worshiping a bunch of fake gods. And remember, he is angry about all of these stinking idols all over the place. But they are worshipers. They are religious. They have chosen to believe in something. And so the first thing that Paul does is he compliments them, and he shows that at the very least he understands that they are a pious group of people. So therefore, you haven't just come to these conclusions lightly. You've thought about them. You have made your decisions. You know who you think your gods are. Secondly, he, he paid attention to who and what they worshipped. Now, this is important, okay? We're going to come back to this one later because this is important. He took time before he had this conversation, while he is there in the Argus all these times, he walks around and he looks at what these things are. And as he's walking around and seeing these things, he saw all the idols to the gods, but he also saw an idol to an unknown god. Now, they had created this idol as sort of like the catch-all for fear that they might offend some deity of whom they were unaware and had failed to give the proper worship, i.e. they didn't want to leave anyone out and then get busted for it. There is thinking that the idol was most likely an idol to unknown gods, that it was even more of a blanket. But Paul refers to it as the idol to the unknown god. And he says, you have this idol out here, but you don't know who the idol's for. If he's unknown to you, then you are ignorant of who he is. Now, notice what he says. He doesn't say they are ignorant people. What he's saying is, I know something about this that you don't know. And why do you not know it? Why? Because they haven't been told yet. 
I always say, this is, you're welcome to uh, take this if you want. There's a big difference between being ignorant and being stupid. It's okay in your life to be ignorant at times. Because what ignorance means is that you simply don't know something. Being stupid means you know something and you're just choosing to do the wrong thing anyway. Right? So at times you're going to be ignorant and that's fine. You just don't know yet. And that's where they are. So this is how he hooks them, my good people. He says, you have an unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. Number one, this unknown God to you is God the creator. He is the maker of the world. The concept of God as absolute creator, however, would not be so easy for these people to grasp. For them, divinity was to be found in the heavens and nature and humanity and the idea of a single supreme being who stood over the world, who created all who exists, who has his hands in the world, is an idea that is different to them. But he makes a couple of points about him. Because God is the creator above all things, he cannot be contained in some God house. Because he's bigger than that. He can't be contained like this. But let me tell you something about him. He gives life and breath to all things. Secondly, he doesn't just sit back. He is a providential God. He made every human nation. He, he set them out to where they should go. No matter who you are or what you believe, this God is the one who created you. There is, in fact, no one who falls outside of this relationship with him. Therefore, everyone is responsible to him. He cannot be ignored. And his desire is that all people will at some point in their lives reach out for him and find him. Isn't that a wonderful sort of contrast between a God who has done all these amazing things and is looking for you? Thirdly, he, he is to be worshipped. If, if humankind is the true image of God, the work of God's hand, it follows that no image made by human hands can render some picture of this God. If humanity is like God, then God is not like gold or silver or any such material representation. Only only the creature can express the true worship of the creator, not the creation of the creature, not something by human design and skill, i.e., all these idols you have are about as far removed from this God as possible. Because how could you begin to capture the likeness of a God this big? Can't do it. He is too much for that. And lastly, now that you have this knowledge, I want you to know that at the end of all of this, God is going to judge, and he's going to set things right, and he will hold everyone responsible for what they choose and what they believe and what they don't. And so, there you go. 
Now, this is a different message than we've heard from Paul, isn't it? Because he's speaking to a different group of people. Now, listen to what happens after this, from verses 32 through 33. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. Okay, how successful was Paul in his argument? Eh? <laughs> right? There were some people that heard what Paul said and got stuck on one thing, which was the resurrection, and couldn't move their minds past the resurrection, and so they're pretty much done with him. There are a few, though, that came and believed. But the one thing I want you to see is that Paul here, super smart, Holy Spirit gifted Paul, is not entirely successful. Or is he? Well, what was his goal going into this thing? Perhaps to make followers, to have disciples. But what if his goal was something much more simple than that? I mean, Paul wants to make disciples. He wants to make followers. He understands that's his job. But what if his goal was simply to speak the truth out loud into a place it hadn't been heard yet. Was he successful? Yes. Was he successful in the sense that the entire town of Athens came to know God? No. But some believed because they heard the truth and they accepted it. Now, what do we learn from this story? Number one, it doesn't matter who you're talking to or what their background is or what their experience is or whatever. It, it doesn't matter how much they know or what books they've read or what reasons they have for not believing. All of those things don't actually have any bearing on whether God is who he is or not. You hear me? Therefore, no matter what conversation you are in, be confident in who God is in your life. Be unafraid of who God is in your life. They call you stupid. Okay. They push back on things you can't answer. Okay. Does any of that make God cease to be? No. It doesn't work <laughs> that way. And just because someone doesn't believe in God and thinks you're stupid for believing in God and can tell you all the reasons why you are wrong, it doesn't make them right. Amen. Even if they really mean it. It doesn't make them right. So be confident in who God is. Number two, and this is the biggest one here, folks, Pay attention to what the person is saying and where they're coming from. And don't try to answer every challenge right away because if you're not listening, you can't say the truth they need to hear. 
You don't listen so that you can simply debate them and push them back on each point. You listen so that you can understand where they are coming from because you won't know what they need to know about God if you don't know what they think and why they think it. It's like trying to answer every question without knowing what the questions are. No wonder we get overwhelmed because we're not listening. We're not paying attention. I've had this conversation uh, with some parents or grandparents before who come to me and they say that their children or grandchildren don't believe in God or that they say they're atheists or that they say all of these different things. And my first question typically to them is, okay, well, why do they think that? I don't know. They just, okay. See, our impulse, particularly for people we love, is to want to fix it, right? You have unbelief. I want to help you have belief. But we can't help them understand God in a different way if we're not listening to where they are coming from. So if your child says or your friend says, well, I'm an atheist, well, why are you an atheist? And don't go down that road of, you know, it takes more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. Just saying. No, don't do that. Listen to them. Why are they where they are? Because there's probably a reason. And don't even try to answer back. Just listen. And third, the last thing that we learn from this, I think, is that even if we give a great response, you're not always going to be successful in your attempts. I mean, Paul wasn't guided by God into these places. Paul didn't convince everyone of everything every time. And you know what? Even though he gave a speech that we think is amazing, people still thought he was stupid. Which says what? Sometimes it's more important for the truth just to get out there than it is for someone to respect you and say how smart you are. What's it really about? What's the, what are these moments really about? That I want someone to validate me and what I think? Or is it simply more about I can perhaps respect and honor someone for the thought and time they've put into something, even if I don't agree with them. And, and that perhaps by listening to them, I can understand a way that God can enter this situation. For example, God is in nature, don't you think? I absolutely do. Do you see him in nature? Or, or, or spiritual is in nature, you know. Well, isn't that God? Like, God is, is in all of these places and things. And lastly, though it, it, in any of these cases, it's not about us. It's just not. It's about speaking the truth in a way that people can hear. That is not insulting. That is not hurtful. That is not angry. But that speaks the truth and puts it out into the world and says... This is who God is. Would you like to know him also? I am grateful for this passage. I'm grateful for this different look because it speaks to me. It speaks to me that maybe I need to change my perspective on what success is or isn't, that maybe I, I need to have more confidence and the truth of God, even in situations where it seems like God would be 
rejected or I would be rejected because of it. May God give us the strength to not be intimidated, but to speak the truth at all times. To speak the truth at all times, to speak the gospel into the world. And maybe that's what Paul understood better than anything else. His prayer was to make disciples, but his job was to speak the gospel into the world. And that's the, tr- the same truth for us. Amen?